Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible complex specialty care that cares about your ROI. It's possible because we're already doing it all while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing. However you cha-ching from the launch your online shop stage all the way to the, we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash specialoffer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash specialoffer. What's up, all of our Liberty-loving friends? This is another fantastic episode of Good Morning Liberty. My name is Nate Thurston, and I'm joined today by Professor Alexander Salter. He's an associate professor in the Rawls College of Business at Texas Tech University, a research fellow at the Free Market Institute, and a senior fellow with the American Institute for Economic Research, and a Young Voices contributor. Alex, how are you doing today? I'm doing really well. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited about this conversation because so I, I trade in the stock market every day, and I am ready for next Tuesday. I just want to know what's going to happen with the CPI when it comes out. And then Wednesday, I got to know what what's going to happen on Wednesday. I'm hanging by Jerome Powell's every word at the at the moment. And you recently had a piece in the Wall Street Journal saying that we're we're not close yet on the interest rate. Is that right? That's right. I had a letter to the editor on the Wall Street Journal the other day arguing that although I hope America turns the inflationary corner, I don't think that we're there yet. Now I'm actually skeptical of reducing all of monetary policy just to interest rates. I think there's much more to it than that. But if you want to look at interest rates, it's clear that they're telling us that we're not there yet in terms of curbing pricing pressures. Right now, the market expects something like around 5% inflation over the next year. The policy interest rate target right now is 375 to 4%. That means that inflation-adjusted interest rates are negative looking forward. The neutral interest rate, the rate that's consistent with non-accelerating inflation, is about somewhere between 6% and 9%. So again, we're just not close to neutral territory yet. It's far too soon to be talking about stepping off the brakes. We need to control inflation if we want to make sure that the American economy can perform as strongly as possible. Now, we'll go into, of course, uh, how we got this inflation and how we can get out of it. But you cite something called the Taylor Rule. Uh, in this letter to the editor. And I've heard other people mention it before. In fact, I heard, I believe, a member of the Fed mention it just a couple of weeks ago. And it would suggest that we need to be, I was looking around, around 7 8% right now. Could you give me the layman's definition, the difference between how we do it right now and what it would be like if we just followed a rule like, <clears throat> sorry, excuse me, the Taylor rule? Sure. 
So the Taylor rule is a back of the envelope way of trying to figure out what the policy rule should be based on economic fundamentals. So the Taylor rule has three parts. One, you assume an interest rate that's consistent with full capital allocation. Historically, that's been about 2%. And then you adjust that interest rate depending on, on the one hand, is the economy overproducing relative to trend? And also whether inflation is too high relative to trend. If the economy is quote unquote running hot, that's a metaphor I really don't like, but everybody keeps on using it. So I'll use it too, just for intelligibility. If the economy is running hot, the idea is that you want to raise interest rates. And if the economy is quote unquote running cool, the idea is that you want to lower interest rates. And the Taylor rule is kind of like an internal policy weather vane for central bankers that tells them how to do that. It's not really an outcome rule or a target rule. I would argue that it's most useful as a way of generating guidance for central bankers on a case-by-case basis. Okay. And you mentioned that you don't like this idea of a running hot. To me, that sounds more like we're dealing with a demand-driven economy, not a supply-driven economy. Am I right uh, with that idea? That's usually how you associate it. The problem that I have with this idea of running the economy hot or running the economy cold is it treats the economy like a machine with a predictable set of responses to certain stimuli, right? The idea you can treat interest rates like a lever, push them one way, pull them another way, and then the economy will respond in automatic ways. The most simplistic version of this argument translates into the case that you've probably heard that there's this trade-off between inflation and unemployment. We can either run the economy hot, in which case inflation will be high and unemployment low, or we can cool things down, in which case we'll have lower inflation, but we'll have to tolerate higher unemployment. And we've known since the 1980s in academic circles and scholarly economic circles is that's just nonsense. You can have full employment at 2% inflation. You can have full employment at 10% inflation. You can even have full employment with no inflation, 0% change in the price level. What matters is whether monetary policy is stable and predictable, and that helps markets allocate all resources, including labor, to their highest valued uses and the largest quantities possible. So we need to get away from this idea that policymakers can tinker with the economy like a machine. It's just not true. What they can and should do is set stable background conditions for economic activity. We need to start thinking about policymakers like central bankers, not as players in the game, but as referees. There's uh, there's one thing that the Fed, I guess, doesn't have as much control over, which is the supply side. And over the last couple of years, we've had big issues with supply side economics. Now, we've introduced a lot of demand as as well in the monetary supply. Uh, but what what would you think? Is there something that they should can they get around this whole supply problem is interest rates, are interest rates just the only tool that they have? And so there's no reason for them to worry about that. I said a couple of years ago when this all started about a year ago that their normal tool, just raising interest rates, that's not really dealing with the whole problem. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? The supply side of the economy does complicate things. And you're absolutely right. The standard way economists think about monetary policy is that long-term growth, the economy's trend growth rate, is ultimately a matter of productivity. It comes down to labor, capital, technology, legal institutions, natural resources, these sorts of things. That is not within the power of day-to-day monetary policy to control. So that's something that we more or less have to take as given. The job of monetary policy should be minimizing the economy's fluctuations around that trend line. We don't want artificial booms. We don't want artificial busts. We want to keep things on a more or less even keel. 
And so in my view, the way that monetary policy monetary policymakers should respond to supply shocks is by doing nothing at all. They should not respond to supply shocks either way. If the economy is worsening on the supply side, they simply have to tolerate a little bit lower output and a little bit higher inflation. If we have massive productivity gains on the supply side, monetary policymakers should be okay tolerating lower inflation and higher real output growth. Really, monetary policy is about stabilizing the demand side of the economy. So if we have supply side problems, the least bad thing the monetary authority can do is nothing. And if we have supply side, uh, if we have nice things happening on the supply side, faster than expected growth, better technology, better productivity, monetary policymakers should basically let that ride too. So inflation has come down over the last couple reports that I've seen. Uh, Jerome Powell went out there and gave what I called a mission most likely accomplished speech is what it started to sound like. Uh, did the Fed is the Fed actually winning this war or are we just going to see what we saw in the 70s, which is this wave pattern of peaks and troughs, each one being higher than the next? Are we just on the downside about to head back up next year? It's probably not going to be the 1970s. As high as inflation got, it never got to 1970s levels, and it is coming down more quickly. So that's nice on the one hand. On the other hand, the Federal Reserve is committed to a policy framework that I think is fundamentally unserious in terms of taming inflation. In August 2020, they switched to what they call flexible average inflation targeting, which was this idea that instead of trying to hit 2% inflation each year, they were going to try and hit 2% in the long run on average. Now, there are some reasons on paper where that looks like a good idea, but what it actually translates into is we're okay with higher than 2% inflation because that's easy to deal with, but we're never, ever, ever going to run the economy at the degree level or the degree necessary to get lower than 2% inflation. So all of a sudden, your target is what we call asymmetric in the economics literature. It's not credible because you're willing to tolerate higher inflation but you're not willing to tolerate the lower inflation necessary to bring things back to the target trend growth path. So in other words, markets have no reason to think the Federal Reserve is credible in terms of dealing with inflation, and they have no reason to, right? If you look at the Fed's own economists, they're saying, oh, we expect inflation to return to about 25 2.3% in 2025. You guys control that with monetary policy. Why is it taking you two more years from now to get inflation back down to 2%? That's under your control. You can change that. You should be targeting your own forecast. If you're saying that it's going to take two more years just to get dollar depreciation back within manageable historical levels, that's you admitting to the market that you do not know what you are doing. And so markets have every reason not to take you seriously. I'm no mathematician, but I'm pretty sure in order to have an average of 2%, they're not just going to be able to run at above 2% or 2%. I think you have to throw in some numbers that are lower than 2% eventually. You would think that that's how it works. And that is, in fact, how the math works. And that's why <laughs> we said that the target is, in fact, asymmetric. It's not credible because they're simply not willing to tolerate monetary policy that would generate something between zero and 1% inflation that would be necessary to average that out at two. We're just going to have to face the fact that all that dollar depreciation that happened over the past two years is permanent. We're never going to get that purchasing power back. So I do want to get on to a couple of the other uh, articles that I liked uh, when it comes to school choice and a couple other things, uh, but I have, I have a response. I want to get your response from uh, I want to get your response to world-renowned economist Robert Reich, who says the Fed 
is hell-bent on raising interest rates to slow the economy. That puts the burden of fighting inflation on low-wage workers and the poor. Meanwhile, corporations are having record profits. Of course, we are not in a in a wage price spiral. We're in a profits price spiral. And then, of course, he goes on to talk about oil company greed and all that. What would you say back to Reich on that? If one of my freshmen tried to give me that answers on an exam, I'd fail them. There is just <laughs> no there there in terms of basic economics, in terms of how we understand how things work. You want to talk about workers' wages? Look at what's happened to inflation-adjusted wages for the last two years straight. They have fallen precipitously. Only just recently has wage growth caught up with inflation. So what we've known historically, this isn't always the case, but it is fairly common, is that when you have surprise inflation, wages lag behind. They don't go up as fast as prices in general go up. And so that's taking purchasing power from workers. If you want to restore the purchasing power of American families and American households, one of the best things that you can do is stop inflation as fast as you can. In terms of a wage price spiral, there's really no such thing in terms of the underlying economic logic. Still less is there anything called a profit price spiral. Again, you're looking at variables like profits and wages. You need to adjust those for inflation. You need to adjust those for the purchasing power of the dollar. So of course, corporations have record profits expressed in nominal dollars, which means currently valued dollars. Inflation is happening because total spending in the economy is surging. But again, once we start doing the inflation adjustments and once we start digging into the relative price and interest rate changes that underlies all this inflation, we realize the problem is just aggregate demand has been running too high for too long. And we've known this for more than a year now. If we actually are concerned with helping the most vulnerable Americans, getting the dollar's growth path in terms of purchasing power under control is probably the single best thing that we can do. See, all of that sounds so simple and and obvious to a lot of people who think more free market-based economics. Unfortunately, what Reich says, I mean, it really resonates with a lot of people. They, they think the amount of money that was printed has nothing to do with inflation. This is all because greedy corporations decided altogether, they all had a meeting, like backdoor meeting, every single one of them decided to raise their prices uh, all at the same time. And if we just have some type of law that comes in and taxes those profits, then we'll be able to take care of all of this inflation and it's still that argument still plays with some people and i i don't know if i just need to stop paying attention to it but i don't know someone's got to say something back to these people sometimes i do wonder very frequently these days if we're willing to extend to corporations the assumptions of benevolence and altruism when uh, when oil is at 40 dollars a barrel mm-hmm. Because surely if the reason that oil prices are so high right now is greed by oil corporations and energy corporations, the natural assumption would be, well, it must be the case that they're being nice and full of warm fuzzies and love for humanity when oil prices are low. But of course, that's not how it works. Corporations are greedy, but they're always greedy. They are never not profit maximizing. So given that they're always profit maximizing, you can't really say corporate greed is causing high oil prices. That's really just coming down to supply and demand in global energy markets. Again, there are very simple, straightforward Ecom 101 explanations for these things. It just so happens that right now, those Ecom 101 explanations are inconvenient for the political left, which is why they're pretending they don't understand them. And of course, it should be said that oftentimes those Ecom 101 explanations are uncomfortable and inconvenient for the right. Right? This is not a partisan thing. I think it was Mises who said the economist can never truly be the friend of those in power. 
because the economist's job is necessarily speaking truth to power and saying, look, the world doesn't work the way that you think it works. This is not friends and enemies. This is market prices responding to supply and demand. So take your head out of the sand and learn something about how markets work. I think Thomas Sowell said the first rule of economics is scarcity and the first rule of politics is to ignore the first rule of economics. There's a lot of great, That's right. <laughs> a lot of great economics and politics quotes out there. There's something else I wanted to talk about before we finish up, because uh, I come from a family. My my mom has been a teacher for about almost 30 years now, and uh, the co-host Charlie, who's not here, a bunch of people in his family work in schools and administrators. And you had a piece talking about uh, rural school districts and not having anything to fear about school choice. And one thing I've heard from People, I, I'm not going to name any more names, but that we can't have school choice because it's going to destroy our poor schools and it's going to take away jobs from teachers and the whole system is going to collapse. And so we can't allow people to have choices. So what are your thoughts on that? Well, the short answer is that I disagree, but I think the place <laughs> to start is recognize that in some sense, the teachers actually have legitimate beef. If you look at education spending for student in virtually all states, and certainly Texas, it just keeps on going up and up and up and up and up. Where's the money going? It's not going to teacher pay. It's going to all these side programs and it's going to administrators. It's going to an entire class of people that are actually not in the classroom educating our children. So I'm not completely unsympathetic to what teachers are complaining about. They do have some grievances. That being said, they are not acquitting themselves well when they make up scary stories about how school choice is going to affect the educational system. On the one hand, they'll say that school choice, if we introduce a voucher program, if we introduce an education savings account program like Arizona just introduced, that that is going to ruin rural schools, that you're just going to see an exodus of students from rural school districts, right? We're talking about regions that have two or one even high school. It's the center of their community, right? Friday night lights and all that great stuff. It's just going to ruin those communities. And then in the next breath, They'll say, well, school choice only benefits students in urban districts. It doesn't help students in rural districts because they don't have the private school alternatives. That other argument directly undermines the previous argument, because if there are no exit options, if there aren't a mass of private schools just waiting to open in rural school districts, where are the students going to flee to? Sure, at the margin, you're probably going to have some students taking the money and doing homeschooling options or half-day learning pods or classical schools. But that's going to be pretty rare. By and large, most people are actually happy with their rural school districts. And so I would expect that that's the area where you're not going to see a lot of exodus. And since education funding largely depends on how many students are attending the school over a given time period, they're not going to really see their education funding hampered all that much. Where school choice is really going to have big effects is in urban districts where students are, because they've been locked in by their zip code, locked into failing schools with underperforming teachers and administrators who are depriving them of the transformative power of a quality education. And I think that people in that sort of a system do need to be worried. But you know what? They should be worried because education is not for the teachers. Education is not for the administrators. Education is for the students. They are the ultimate beneficiaries and their interests have not been served for too long. So we do need to shake things up. And we can talk about all this additional data that shows that school choice is actually also good on several margins for existing public schools, right? Existing public schools actually start teaching better. They step up their game when they have competition, just like virtually everybody steps up their game when they have competition. But in terms of getting relief to students that are trapped in failing schools, that's going to happen in a lot of urban areas, right? We're looking here in Texas and the urban districts in Dallas, San Antonio, 
Houston, places like that where students really need a transformative solution so they can get on the right track and get the kind of education that's going to help them succeed in life. But rural school districts, they don't have anything to worry about. And I think the teachers unions know that, which is why they talk out of both sides of their mouth on this issue. It's true. I went to a rural school district. We had five towns that went to my high school a while back and there were still less than 400 kids at the school. So a lot of really small towns. And I can tell you that school would not be damaged by school choice whatsoever. It was actually a really great school. Everyone did a great job there. And so I really like the points that you're making. Um, how do you get this? You know, I'm just I'm just trying to think about the conversation. If I ever try to have this conversation, I'm not going to do it as well as uh, as what you just did. You know, I can either I can either refuse to even go down that road because I'm just talking about choice and we should have choices. Right. You're just can you really make an argument that says that my kids should not have the choice to go to a better school if they want to go? Is it good to have it on those grounds or can I also say, well, actually, there's better results when you have school choice? Is there is there hard evidence that it, that there are actually better results at some of these private schools or charter schools? There is hard evidence on a bunch of measures. Obviously, the most straightforward one and the one that most people care about is educational outcomes, educational effectiveness. Are the students who have the ability to take choice of cho- uh, to take advantage of choice programs actually getting a better education? And the bulk of the social scientific evidence says yes. Right. The great thing about these pilot programs that we have at various places across the country is we can approximate a controlled experiment. Because one of the ways that it works is a bunch of families will enter their kids in a lottery and the lottery randomly picks who gets to go to a charter school or who gets to have a voucher pilot program funding to go to a private school. Because the selection among the pool is random, you can actually compare the treatment group quotes with the control group and compare their education outcomes. And that gives you a first past the post approximation of how much better these students are learning when they have choice. Not every single study says that there are improvements, but that would be unreasonable and as complex a social system as schools. But the vast majority of the evidence does say that school choice is good for student learning. School choice is good for reducing crime in school districts. We already talked about how school choice actually causes existing public schools to teach better and more effectively because when they have to compete, they have to try and retrain, uh, retain students. So it doesn't matter what outcome you're looking at, math skills, reading skills, writing skills, communal health, communal solidarity. The evidence ranges from pretty good to grand slam that school choice actually does improve the well-being of students. So at least in terms of the effectiveness debate, it's a no-brainer. Now, we have plenty of political battles that are going on all the time. And this being a libertarian show, we're generally upset about almost everything that's going on all the time. But would you say would you say to our listeners, this is actually one that people are winning on the school choice movement. This seems to be winning around the country. Yes. I think that this is an issue as time has come, even in places where it should have happened earlier, but has not yet like Texas, because frankly, in Texas, the holdup has been rural district Republicans at the state level. People who have said, we're just not going to get on board with this issue. And for a while, that was a winning political strategy. But given all the drama and shakeups we're seeing in education following the COVID pandemic, that is no longer sustainable. Parents are stomping, hopping mad, and they have a right to be. The educational system failed the vast majority of students in most places during the COVID pandemic. And when parents got an up-close and personal look when their students were doing remote learning at what they're actually studying, spending their time on, spending their resources on, parents pretty understandably, understandably got mad 
that they are being politically indoctrinated rather than studying, reading, writing, and arithmetic, teaching them the skills necessary to succeed. And so I really think that you have a critical mass of support for this issue. Here in Texas, 88% of members of the Republican Party are now on board with school choice. 88%. That's a huge, huge number. You know what happens to that number if you restrict the polling sample to only rural counties, counties with fewer than 100,000 people? Doesn't change at all. 88% still favor school choice. So to the extent that the barrier issue here in Texas was, well, rural district Republicans won't get on board, I think that public opinion now is going to force them to get on board if they want to keep their jobs. And that's a good thing. We actually do need this transformative effect for urban students, and we should give all students, even rural students, the option of doing something like homeschooling or classical academies. If we're being honest, not that many rural students will take advantage of it, but some will. And it's good that we can tailor educational outcomes based on individual student needs, based on what the families think is best for their children, because that's the ultimate constituency here. That's good. I think it's good for us to end on a positive note. There's so many negative things that we talk about on a daily basis, and there does actually seem to be a movement that's that's moving in the right direction right now. So, um, Alex, I thank you so much for your time. Where can people go to keep track of uh, your writing just all over the place? I'm seeing you publish everywhere. Where can people go to keep track of all of that? I publish all of my writing on my personal website. The URL is www.awsalter.com. I usually post my articles on Facebook, although I'm off Facebook until after Christmas. But again, everything that I write, scholarly, public, all of my media appearances, I try and get it on my website as soon as possible. And so if you're curious about my thoughts on other things, and I'm flattered if you are, uh, you can always find them there. If you run into a paywall, shoot me an email. We can talk about how we can get around it. And I would love to hear from, I love to hear from readers. I love talking with intelligent and curious people who just want to discuss ideas with me, especially when they want to disagree, because that's when we can actually have a conversation and talk about things. And I learn things too all the time from my readers. Let's not just assume that just because I'm the professor that I'm the only one teaching. That's just not how it works in a free society. That's fun. Maybe next time I can think of something that we disagree on and we should run through that. That would be pretty fun. I know a lot of listeners would enjoy that too. Well, Professor Salter, thank you so much for your time today. Love Love to have you back on. Absolutely. Thank you.